Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special Citizens United at 10 Symposium episode of the show. In recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, we're interviewing scholars about the research on the decision and the issues that it raises. We're also taking a look forward for things to watch for over the next 10 years. We'll return next week with our regular episodes. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or let others know about the show too. Our next guest on the Citizens United at 10 podcast symposium is Elizabeth Pullman, professor at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. Elizabeth has the distinction of being the first guest in the Business Scholarship Podcast to be featured two times in one month. So, Elizabeth, uh, welcome back to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks very much. I thought we might start this conversation by uh, kind of introducing the listeners to some background of some of the research and scholarship that you've done over the last 10 years as it relates to Citizens United uh, and corporate constitutional rights. So I'd be happy to hear about what you've done in that area and how it might intersect with this question of Citizens United and uh, campaign finance and corporate law. Sure. Well, the first thing that I wrote in the space was about Citizens United, and it was before Citizens United was actually handed down. I might actually be the first person to have published in the legal literature about Citizens United, because when I saw the case being scheduled for re-argument, I thought that it would be a really big deal in terms of business law, and I hadn't seen discussion of it, uh, what was going on from the corporate law perspective. And so I thought, oh, I want to write about this. I had just started my fellowship at Stanford Law School. So I had the time. And the thing was, though, that I didn't have time to wait for the full law review cycle for a year out because I saw the case coming. And I really wanted to write something that I hope people would see, specifically perhaps people on the court or uh, their clerks. And so I wrote an essay for Yale Law Journal Online. It was kind of in the early days of actually when the journals were doing online editions. So um, Yale had a pretty tight word count limit. And so I wrote a really short essay before the case was handed down. And what I wanted to draw attention to was the idea that the longstanding concern about shareholders in corporations having money spent for political speech and having dissenting shareholders in that situation was more compelling than ever because the patterns of stockholding had changed in the U.S. dramatically since the Bilotti decision decades before it. And even more so than in the past, the idea of corporate democracy wouldn't alleviate concerns because of the way that so much more stock was held through intermediaries with institutional shareholding and a lack of information. So I wrote this short essay to raise those points that I thought the concern was more compelling than ever. Of course, the court didn't go my way, (laughs) what I thought it should have done in Citizens United. And when the decision was handed down, Yale Law Journal actually reissued, reposted the essay, which was nice. And the case, as we all know now, got a lot of attention. And that was really the beginning of my own work in the academy. And I spent a significant time in my fellowship uh, working on issues related to corporate rights. So the next thing that I did after writing that short essay was I started a big project just reading everything that I could about the history of corporate rights. And I wrote a piece called Reconceiving Corporate Personhood uh, next. And it was a deep dive trying to trace the historical and jurisprudential developments of corporate personhood. And what I found was that the origins were really limited of what granting rights under the Constitution was meant to do for corporations. Um, It was really about protecting individuals' property and contract rights. And the idea of granting rights to corporations under the Constitution was really only a starting point because just the idea of corporations having personhood so that they could hold those rights 
isn't a reason to grant or deny rights. It doesn't really tell you much. And what I saw when I read the case law over time was that there really wasn't a systematic way of making that determination anyway. So the fact that one corporation would have a certain type of right doesn't tell you much about whether other types of corporations would have that right or other rights. And so in that piece, I did this kind of tracing of the history and the jurisprudence. And I also argued that it should only be when it serves the purpose of the right to grant it to a particular corporation, such corporations would have constitutional rights. And from there, I kind of went deeper into things that I had found in doing that initial research. Um, So for example, the next piece I wrote was about corporations and privacy rights. And I wrote that piece because when I mapped out the development of rights for corporations, I found that one area that really hadn't been addressed much, but that I thought was on the horizon was an idea of privacy rights for corporations. And around that time, Margaret Blair and I from Vanderbilt also started working together on a piece that was the original uh, Reconceiving Corporate Personhood piece. I met Margaret and she invited me to present that to her seminar. And then we decided we would co-author. And then she got back in touch with me and she had been invited to work on something for the Tobin Project. They had started up a project on corporations and American democracy. So Margaret and I started doing research for that, and around the time that I wrote A Corporate Right to Privacy, Margaret Blair and I co-authored a piece called The Derivative Nature of Corporate Constitutional Rights, and that was co-authored work in which we were really trying to do detailed work looking at the history of corporations alongside the history of corporate rights to understand how the Supreme Court was viewing the corporations that came before it and whether the case law had stayed up to date and on track with what had happened with the development of corporations in the U.S. And we found that around the late 1800s, there were dramatic changes that were going on with corporations, and that was never really accounted for by the Supreme Court. And the decisions most recently, like Citizens United and Hobby Lobby regarding RIFRA, were even in starker contrast to the earlier jurisprudence about what the court was doing when it was granting rights. And I've done some other work since then. So that's a a little bit (laughs) about the work that I've done since Citizens United. All right. Well, great. Thank you for that that background and, and overview. And I'll be sure to include links to those papers in the show notes for the episode. So as somebody who has been watching Citizens United before Citizens United was even decided by the court, I wonder if you can maybe talk about some of the developments from that case over the last decade or so that have surprised you or maybe that didn't surprise you as much. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice question because in some ways, the things that I would comment on both kind of surprise me and kind of don't surprise me at the same time. So the reason why I really wanted to work on this initially was because I knew it would be very important. It is an important area for corporations. It's an important area for corporate law scholars. When I first started working on these things about a decade ago, there hadn't been that many business law scholars that had looked at this intersection of corporate law and constitutional law. That's really changed in the last decade. Um, there had been a few people at that time who had done some deep work, but not so much. And it's hard as a corporate law scholar to do work at the intersection of constitutional law. But I thought that it was really important to have voices in the discussion that were really focused on understanding corporations. And that, I think, has become even more important over time. So in some ways, I really had the instinct that this was an important area of corporate law. And in some ways, it surprised me just how much it has, because my instinct was that if the court ruled in Citizens United to expand the speech rights of corporations, 
it would push a lot of issues that had been in the constitutional law debate into corporate law. And corporate law doesn't have a great way of dealing with these things. It's not really how corporate law has developed. It, it hasn't been the focus. And the mechanisms aren't really designed to do things like aggregate expressive values in business corporations. So in some ways, it doesn't surprise me because it's exactly why I wanted to work on it. I thought it would be important and timely in a way that corporations matter in society and issues that corporate law voices should have a much bigger role in. But at the same time, it surprised me just how much and how many other people have started to work in this space, which I think is really great. And the people who have been uh, writing on this even before me, I think probably were really visionary in doing some of this work decades ago. So that's been kind of the the past 10 years or so since Citizens United. What outcomes from that case will you be watching to see? What implications for that case will you be watching to see over the next decades? Uh, and do you have any predictions that you might offer? Yeah. So some people... So people have different viewpoints, naturally, on how important Citizens United was in terms of political spending. And some people have noted, for example, that actually the bigger impact has come from individuals spending more. And part of that was from the logic of Citizens United and later rulings that allowed for um, super PACs, et cetera. But in some ways, we just don't actually know because we still don't have information that allows for transparency to really understand the true impact of corporate political spending. And I think that a trajectory in which there's an environment in which individuals are spending so much, as well as corporations potentially, it's changed the environment in a way going forward. And not just Citizens United, but other decisions as well, like Hobby Lobby and others, have been built upon and expanded by federal courts in decisions that don't get as much attention. And so going forward, the types of things that I've been really interested in watching have been related to the commercial speech doctrine and the freedom of association, because these are areas where there's potential expansion of granting more rights to business corporations. And the impact of Citizens United can have these ripple effects where it's even about different contexts of rights for corporations. And that's really been the history of corporate rights in the U.S. So I, you know, I think predictions are dangerous. I think Adolf Burley said that, but you have to try to do them anyway. And so the trend line, as you study it, of over 200 years of Supreme Court jurisprudence with corporations and rights has been one of expansion. So the safe bet would be more, more expansion, um, just as a descriptive matter. But I think that becomes really problematic in some of these spaces like freedom of association, commercial speech, et cetera. So I think that the trend line will be for greater expansion. And specifically, when you look historically, um, certain types of corporations may be granted a right, like a nonprofit may be granted a right, like the NAACP during the civil rights era. And then later, business corporations will rely on those cases to argue for greater rights themselves. And the impact of that is typically, just to keep it in perspective, to allow corporations to get out of regulations or, or that sort of thing. So these areas of commercial speech doctrine, for example, are really important because they impact the ability of regulators to regulate corporations on some basic things like labeling, disclosures, etc. And those are areas that we've seen incremental expansions of commercial speech protections for corporations. 
And to the extent that that continues, I think it really will start to be very problematic because we don't have a very systematic or coherent way of drawing those lines between different types of corporations, between different types of contexts in which you might have commercial speech and what commercial speech really is, for example, and whether business corporations are the type of organization that could have associational protections and why that would be, and if it would really be serving the purpose of these rights to be granting it to the whole spectrum of corporations from small business corporations to large public ones, from nonprofits to for-profits, et cetera. So I I think the trend line will probably continue to be one of expansion and it will be increasingly problematic. Our guest on this episode of the Citizens United at 10 podcast symposium has been Elizabeth Pullman, professor at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. Elizabeth, thank you for joining. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.